Howdy folks, welcome to Camera Shake, where we bring you the insider scoop on all things photography and videography, giving you a unique opportunity to stay ahead of the curve. We spent literally hundreds of hours interviewing some of the most renowned photographers of our time, giving you access to knowledge and expertise that's not available anywhere else. As always, I'm your host, Kirsten Nuts, and in today's episode, we're going to teleport ourselves to one of the most stunning, beautiful, and most importantly, photogenic locations on the planet. So buckle up, grab a cold one, and let's shake it up with today's guest right after this. Welcome to Camera Shake Podcast, episode 143. Oh, and by the way, I have one small favor to ask of you. We've got some incredible, amazing news coming up. So if you enjoy this podcast, please join the Camera Shake community over on camerashakepodcast.com so that you're the first ones to know. You'll find the link in the description, or if you're watching on YouTube, it'll be right down here somewhere on the screen. But without further ado, let's give it up for today's special guest. He's been on the show many times before, the travel photographer, Northern Nights expert, and Arctic Explorer, that is Dave Williams. Dave, man, how are you? Woo! And the crowd goes wild. That was fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to play some applause in at this point. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Yeah, I am good. I'm very good. Um, I am a little bit sad because I'm here, as you said, in Lofoten, in northern Norway, way beyond the Arctic Circle, in an absolute photographer's paradise. But I'm leaving soon because Schengen and Brexit and everything that's happened that that limits our travel as British passport holders to 90 days out of every 180. So in a couple of days, Kirsten, I have to leave Lofoten, but I do have plans to come back and make it a little more permanent, which I'll hold for now, but it will be revealed soon. Fantastic. I mean, I've been following you on, on social media, obviously, and we've been talking you know, on and off um, over the last three months and stuff. And it's, mm. I mean, it's just one of the most beautiful locations I could possibly imagine. Oh, yes absolutely stunning this place is pretty much built for photographers but interestingly it's only really since instagram happened that lofoten has been visited by so many people and there's a few reasons for that if you want me to go into it i'm happy to go into it oh, there's absolutely. a few reasons for that so number one i'm at svinoya Rorbush. Svinoya is an island next to the town of Svolua, which is right outside the window of this cabin across the water. And a Rorbun, or a Rorbu, is a red fisherman's cabin, which is what I'm in right now. This particular one so, say it again. is uh, about 195 years old. It's crazy. Okay. So one of the biggest draws to this area is the Northern Lights. And um, a lot of Japanese tourists were visiting Canada back in the 90s and early 2000s to go and see the Northern Lights because one of the Japanese um, folklore stories, myths, however you want to put it, about the Northern Lights is that they are the dancing spirits of their ancestors. And so they were keen to go and see the Northern Lights so they could see their ancestors. And the easiest way for them was to go to Canada. However, Finland, you know what? You know where they have Santa's village and the elves and everything at Christmas? Around the area of Rovaniemi? Sure. The people there noticed these jumbo jets flying straight over their heads from Japan to Canada and decided that they wanted to cash in on that. And so they built that whole experience of the cold, the Arctic, Christmas, um, largely around the town of Rovaniemi, which sits on the Arctic Circle Line. But it goes all the way up to Inari, Ivalo, Levy, loads of Finnish towns are jumping on this. In Lofoten, there's one particular chap called Ola. He noticed what was happening uh, over in Finland, and he, he said, well, you can see the Northern Lights here, but we've got incredible landscapes, and we've got a really rich history. And so we want to bring the tourists over here as well. And then they started to develop the old fishermen's cabins, the Rorbu, into places to stay, hotels, resorts. Um, and they're spread all the way throughout the Lofoten Islands. So that's pretty much why tourism started here. And then all the infrastructure was developed around it. The number one income is still fish, by the way. Tourism is number two. 
Um, and since then, with the rise of Instagram, but it, even before that, with Flickr and all these other photo sharing social media sites, people were exploring and photographing some of these incredibly beautiful places along the islands, along this archipelago. And it just drew everyone from around the world. Everyone wanted to take those shots, the same shots. And as you know, I'm quite a firm believer that you should shoot familiar things in different ways with my Eiffel, Eiffel Tower effect theory in the book I've written about it. So I'm always keen to look for new angles on these incredible views. But even the standard view, like Hamnoi, standing on the bridge, looking over the village, the red cabins with the mountain in the background, iconic, everyone's seen it. That's still an incredible view that draws people here from all around the world because they just want to see it. There's so many of those all the way along here. It's it's incredible. As you know, my wife actually recognized uh, a shot of Lofoten on one of her um, sleep story apps. It's an app called Calm, and it's, you know, there's a sleep story um, relating to Norway and the Arctic and stuff, and it, and it, uh, it features an image of, uh, of Lofoten on it. So even she knew where Lofoten was just from that, because it's such an iconic, yeah. as I say, such an iconic oh, image. It's the mountain backgrounds, the red cabins, you know, yeah. the sea. Oh. Yeah. Beautiful. There's some interesting stories about the red cabins. Um, so in in my mind, because I'll get to the reason for this, but in my mind, red paint is more expensive than white paint because red paint is white paint with red pigment. But when these cabins were built, it wasn't made that way. And so red paint was the cheapest paint you could get. That's why they're all red. And then the person who owned the fishing industry, the fishing company, uh, the net companies, all of these, the exporting companies, they all lived in the houses that were painted white. So it goes, red is the cheapest, yellow is a bit more expensive, and white is the most expensive. So as you explore the Lofoten Islands, bear in mind that the red cabins are the cheap ones where the workers lived. The yellow ones were quite often boathouses or places where more prominent people lived. And then the white painted houses were the people that ran the industry, that owned everything. So on this island, there's a whole load of red cabins and then there's one white cabin and that's the manor house the person that owned the fishing business around here so if you look deeper in beyond the photograph the history is really interesting around here i, I mean there's far too much to go into there's loads about the second world war um there are fishing battles there's the battle of trollfjord trollfjord is around the corner where an entire fleet of fishing boats was prevented from entering this fjord which is high um steep cliffs on each side because there were so many herring in there, somebody wanted to capitalize and blocked off the whole fjord. It's crazy. There's so many stories, Kirsten. So many. It's really interesting. It's interesting what you said about, um, you know, different houses in different colors and therefore, like, you know, it, uh, referring to how expensive they were. This, it's actually very similar um, to, or it reminds me of a place where I used to live um, in near the Midlands in, the, in England, um, where I used to live in a, in a tiny little village called Bolbrick Hill, just outside of the city of Milton Keynes. And it's a small, tiny little village, um, and it's. I lived on a hill, and uh, the hill was basically built up with lots of tiny, small cottages. And uh, the area is known for its sand, so they mm. used to basically dig for sand in order to make bricks. That's that's what the area yeah. is famous for. It's a very sandy okay. area. Um, and so, Bulbrick Hill is where all the workers lived, like the lowly workers, you know, lived in the, in the tiny little villages. The next village down the down the road is a village called Woburn Sands, and the buildings there are really different. They're much bigger, you know. And this is where all this of the supervisors, the middle management, right? Mm. And then you get to the, a place called Woburn, which is where all, you know, all the um, whatever you call them, all like all the you know, the, like the bosses lived, so to say, yeah. all the people that used to like pull the strings. Um, and those, you know, those buildings are phenomenal, like manor houses. Know, huge buildings for the time. And we're talking, we're talking second half of the 19th century, I guess. You know, something like mm -hmm. that. Uh, so it's really interesting how that corresponds. You know, and that's that's also very much part of the history of that area. Is mm. you know, is, you know, that whole traditional brick production. There isn't any brick production going on there anymore, and hasn't for for, yeah. for many years. But um, I imagine we're importing cheaper bricks from somewhere else now. 
Yeah, it's all been, I guess it's all been industrialized. You know, there's some other funny yeah. stories. It's actually in, in the village of Pobrick Hill. Um, like I said, I used to live on this hill and we used to have power cuts quite frequently. But what would happen would be not all the houses would be without electricity. It'd be pretty much every other house. So if my house didn't have any power, then the house next to me, the cottage next to me, would have electricity. And the cottage after that uh, would be, you know, on blackout. And so, and then in other, other times, it would be my house that had electricity, but the cottage next to me would have had, would have a, a power cut. And so, mm. as the story goes, um, during the Second World War, uh, there's, a, there's a place in Bletchley called Bletchley Park, which is mm-hmm. only a few miles ago, uh, a few miles away, which is where um, a lot of the Enigma deciphering used to happen during the Second World War. And so a lot of the people that used to work in secret at Bletchley Park used to live in Bull Brick Hill. And so the MOD at the time set up um, a separate power grid so that in the event of an attack, you know, and a general power cut, so they could still contact all their agents in order mm-hmm. to come to, mm-hmm. to, uh, to Bletchley Park. Um, but here's the, here's the yeah. thing, right, but here's the thing. Nobody knows which cottage is on which power grid. So nobody actually yeah. knows. So that's still a secret. So nobody knows whether we're on the Bletchley Park power grid or, you know, or, or not, or whether are on the public power grid. That's good. It's a funny thing. It's, I love the fact that there, you know, no matter where you look, you always find these little stories about places. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so you said you're, you've been, how long have you been in Lofoten now? You've been there for quite a while now. Um, I left the UK, uh, mid-December and I got to Lofoten between Christmas and New Year. Um, just in time for New Year's, uh, New Year's Eve dinner at this beautiful restaurant around the corner called Burshin. Um, it's one of the best restaurants in Northern Norway. And on New Year's Eve, we had Northern Lights and we set off fireworks and we photographed the Northern Lights and the fireworks together. So that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I've been here nearly two months, two and a half months in this location, specifically exploring the whole of Lofoten. Um, but I've been up to something. I've been figuring out, so you know me very well, but for anyone else listening, I am a huge fan of the cold and of the Northern Lights. And I've been trying to figure out, because of all the work I do, I can do remotely, I've been trying to figure out how I can live here, how I can stay here. And I now have a plan for that. So I've been working hard on that and, let's say, adventurizing in between, exploring, looking around, finding new places, um, and shooting some of these iconic scenes. But I've also been shooting the same location over and over and over to test it in different light, different conditions, different weather, and that all leads on to something that I, you, you can say, you can say what the thing is. Well, it's going to be, I think what you're, what you're putting together is, uh, it's an amazing experience for photographers yeah. to come out to the vault and to experience, That's... um, the location mm-hmm. and, but not only the location, cause there's this other stuff. There's a location there is, um, there's of course, Northern lights yeah. and I guess, you know, who better to, to, to photograph the Northern lights with. Than, than the man who wrote the book on the subject. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I don't know if you noticed some interesting news. My book, The Complete Aurora Guide for Travelers and Photographers, is now an Amazon bestseller. <laughs> awesome. That's all right. That's cool. Very cool. Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, anybody who's, um, who's, who's interested in, in shooting the Aurora or the Northern Lights, you know, that's, it's, a, it's a must read. That being said, I've never actually seen the Northern Lights. Right. Yeah. Okay, we're we're gonna change that. <laughs> yeah, I've never been far, so, you know, I've never been far enough north. I think, I guess. Although, yeah. um, not too long ago, I remember you sent me a text, um, and you said like, oh, by the way, you're gonna be able to like tonight, you're gonna be able to not, to see the Northern Lights in the UK because they're coming, you know, further down south. And of course, it was overcast. Like I didn't see anything. I'll tell you what. Tonight, um, so yesterday there was this huge CME coronal mass ejection that left the surface of the sun, and it was on a trajectory that would, uh, would would basically mean it's going to hit the Earth tonight when we record. And so we're recording a bit early so that that happens, so that I, well, not so that happens, so that I can get out early enough because it's going to happen quite early in the evening. Um, it's going to be very strong and it's going to be at quite high latitudes, which is where I am. It's going to be 
a, a huge I'm I'm thinking a G1 substorm of the Northern Lights and if I'm correct then I'll, I'll send you some footage and you can plug it in right here so everyone can see exactly what's happening in the floating the evening of the recording of the podcast um and also that will tell you whether I'm right or not about my interpretation of the space data <laughs> In the space weather so that i know when the northern lights are coming where and how strong um and if, you don't, huge, and if you're not right I, we're just going to cut this whole thing out it, yeah if not then we <laughs> cut it out get rid of it but i'm pretty sure i'm going to be right it's looking really good tonight so how do you measure the northern lights um you, you mentioned like a scale that's like a, a scale of how strong they are or? yeah so here's the thing i'm gonna break something apart right now People talk about the KP index and they think the KP index is going to tell you how strong the Northern Lights are. And when you get um, a Northern Lights app, it will give you the very first figure it will give you is the KP number. And this number ranges between zero and nine, but it, the KP number in terms of forecasting, just disregard it, ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist because it doesn't mean anything. What the KP index is, is the position of the aurora, the latitude of the aurora. And so the auroral oval moves around the Earth, and we get something called geomagnetic midnight, which around here is about 11 p.m. And geomagnetic midnight is the time when the most aurora activity generally happens, although it can happen at any time, even during the daylight. Um, it, it, when it just depends on when the solar wind comes in and hits the earth. So in terms of measuring it, there's not really one single figure that we need to use because what we're interpreting is the CMEs from the coronal mass ejections or the solar flares from the sun, the class that they fall into, um, what kind of magnetic and, uh, microwave radiation they particularly are for each individual solar flare. We're looking at the magnetic conditions on the Earth. So our magnetic field needs to behave in such a way that it pulls the aurora into us. But the aurora itself needs to be of the right value that it's visible, which is called the BT. The BZ is the magnetism of the aurora itself. So that needs to um, work together with the Earth's magnetic field so that it's visible. But then there's the density, which is the thickness. And then there's the speed, which is how deep the aurora is if it's if it's a higher speed it comes in faster and um we get other colors so the most common is green which is <clears throat> excuse me which is the plasma from the sun colliding with particles in our ionosphere our upper atmosphere and um when they collide they have to release energy as part of this energy exchange of the collision and the energy is released as light so when they hit oxygen at regular altitudes it's green so that's the most common color but if it's slow and it's a really high altitude, and when I say high, I'm talking about 400 kilometers above the Earth's surface, crazy high, um, then it's red. But if it's really fast and it comes really low, then it's pink and white. But then there are other gases in the atmosphere. So if you see blue northern lights, that's nitrogen. Any shade of blue, such as purple or even aquamarine, that's the same thing happening with the altitudes uh, but with nitrogen instead of oxygen. So there's all these things going on. There isn't one individual unit of measure to say how strong or where or when the Northern Lights are going to be. You have to interpret quite a collection of data. Um, it is all explained in the book, and there'll be a new version of the book soon because I'm going to write a um, Solar Maximum edition. And Solar Maximum is... The, the Sun has an 11-year cycle of activity. So at the moment, we're approaching solar maximum, which is expected to be 2025. It's announced by NASA when it happens. So we, we don't know for sure, but it's, a, it's going to be about 2025. Um, and when we get all this activity from the sun and all the changes in the Earth's magnetic field, different things happen. And so there are, there's now more information available and there's more to interpret. So I'm going to add all that into the next edition of the book. Um, but basically, if you want to know when I'm here, what's going on, just watch my Instagram because I'll, I'll say tonight's going to be good in a story. Um, and and uh, it's pretty 
pretty good guide. <laughs> if I say it's going to be good, if I've got my camera in my hand, then you know it's good. Correct <laughs> me if I'm wrong, isn't it? Um, I think I've written where that Lofoten is is a particularly um, you know good place to see the ocean Absolutely. because of yes. the magnetic um, properties in the mountains. Is that right? You are correct, sir. Yes. So um, the mountains that that make up northern Norway and Lofoten in particular are made of granite, and granite is very conductive. So there is a very good, very strong magnetic field on this part of the Earth. So when you go to Iceland, you see a different kind of northern lights because the magnetism of the rock or the Earth in Iceland is completely different. Um, it's more spread out. Everything's a bit more spread out and swirly, whereas here it's very focused and concentrated. And so you get dancing curtains and pillars of light in the sky because it's focusing on very specific areas where there's rich granite areas in mountains. Interestingly, the mountains outside the window here are the same mountains from Pangaea way back in the day, millions of years ago, when the Earth was sort of mushed together in one big supercontinent, as the mountains in Scotland and the mountains of the Appalachian Trail on the east coast of America, which is, I think it's cool. That's very cool. Do you, uh, can you see uh, northern lights in the north of Scotland? Is that possible, do you think? Or? Yes, you can. Um, so you can see on a crazy, crazy strong night, you can see them in the north of Spain, but they have to be all the way up, turned up, cranked to the max. And you'll only see them if you're standing on a mountain top with a clear view to the north with no light pollution. But it is possible. In terms of Scotland, it's quite common to see them, but you'll mostly see red. And that's because, as I said just now, the red is a higher altitude of northern light. So it's the oxygen higher altitude. Because of the curve of the Earth and your position, if this is us here in the photo and this is you here in Scotland, you're going to see the top of the northern lights up here. You're going to see the red top end of it and a slight bit of the green underneath. And that goes to another story, actually. So from mythology, imagine you were back in the day, you were, you didn't, you had no idea what the northern lights were. They weren't there every night. They come and go, and there's this weird light in the sky. Sometimes it's so strong it lights up the landscape. There are loads of myths from around the world. The one from Northern England and Scotland is that the Northern Lights were um, a battle taking place in the sky at night in the north. And that's because it was red and it looked like blood. They thought it was blood in the sky. So there's all these awesome stories about what the Northern Lights were. And if you look at the location of the story and the science behind it, you can explain it away. So the red battle the blood in the sky to the north is because of the curve and you're seeing the higher altitude aurora, which is red. But you can see how these stories come into being. I think, you know, if, if you've never seen an aurora before and you, you know, you experience the first time in the sky, you think, yeah. what the hell's going on there? So how easy or difficult is it to photograph the aurora? It's pretty easy. Your camera sensor can see, particularly with new good sensors, can see so many things. I've got a an A7S III that I can crank up to half a million ISO. It can see in the dark. It's crazy. Um, so your average camera can see 13 stops of light and your eye can see one. So that that's how much more powerful your camera is than your eye. Um, so when you photograph it, you can sometimes see aurora that you can't see with your naked eye because it's so weak or so unsettled. But a lot of people say that Oh, you can only see it on the camera. You can't see it in real life. It doesn't look like it looks in the photos. Um, that's rubbish. You you can see it in real life, clear dancing, lighting up the landscape. But it's just that some nights it's stronger than others, and so you only really hear that from the people that didn't see it clearly, uh, or didn't have very strong aurora. But as I said, with solar maximum approaching, things are going to get very fiery for the next few years. So it's going to be very rare to have no northern lights on a clear sky in the north for the next few years. You're going to see some incredible aurora. Yeah, I've always wondered, if you grow up in a place like Portland, so, you know, so you're used to the northern lights and you travel somewhere south, like that must be a weird experience. You don't yeah, see yeah. black skies. It's, it's more strange to me that there are like truck drivers driving around every night with the northern lights. And it's, it seems like they don't care. <laughs> Like they're so used to it that it doesn't, they don't care anymore. They're not going to stop and look or anything like that. They're just going to carry on driving their truck through the Arctic. Or the locals 
will prioritize other things. Like the other night, I went out for a beer, and the Northern Lights were crazy. But we went out for a beer because we've seen it so many times. There are more important things to do. So when it's normal, when you see it all the time, it, you deal with it differently, I guess. But I've seen it so many times, and so have some of the people that I work with here. Um, and I'm still just like they are, mesmerized and captivated by this magical like display of the power of nature and science. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely magical. Just you know, looking at your your images and on Instagram, so it's you know, it's it's phenomenal. And if, I mean, I've always wondered, you know, whether, um, you know, whether a photograph is sort of a natural, you know, a true representation of what it actually looks like in the sky. Yeah. Um, but I think you know, having the experience... any photograph is is how you want to show it as the photographer. So when you Photoshop a person's skin for a magazine, you're altering it slightly, but it's still the person and the place, isn't it? Oh, so I mean, think about it. Think about it that way. It's just it's it's the thing that happened in the sky, but the photographer is interpreting it through their own eyes, their own vision, showing you what they want you to see of it. Yeah, it's like a hyper real image of of the reality that you want to display, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, that's that's exactly how I see it. Um, and you know, it always depends on what kind of imagery you want to create. You know, some some imagery. Um, needs to be closer to real life um and then other imagery can be as far removed as you want it to be you know it's yeah there's no complete fantasy yeah but what is, what is it like living in a location like that i mean i I'm, i take it i mean the seems to be fairly remote yeah um there's no starbucks there's no mcdonald's there's nothing like that <laughs> to some people that's a huge shock i quite like it but yeah um it can be difficult. So Lofoten in particular is on the Gulf Stream. The sea doesn't freeze because it's the it's the warm water that goes across the Atlantic traveling up from the Gulf of Mexico. So this is a warm, nutrient-rich water, which is why the fish dock here is huge and so healthy. Um, but the islands, the land, when it freezes, when it ices over, Life can be very difficult, very, very difficult. But the system, the infrastructure, and the mechanisms up here to keep everything moving run really well. So the if anything happens, the snow plows will be out, the roads will be cleaned, they'll be dealt with, you'll be able to go, everyone's tires have got studs. You drive to the conditions, you drive to your ability. Um, everyone carries on business as normal. It's only when you get like really intense hurricane strength storms that there's really a difference. And they're usually pretty short. The longest I've experienced is two days, but usually they're a few hours and and then it's passed and everything's back to normal. So life is different, but everything just runs normally. Everything works the way it should work. If this weather hit the UK, my goodness, everything would grind to a halt in an instant and take two weeks to get back to normal. But it's an eighth of an inch of snow. Life. It's like an eighth of an inch of snow in the UK does not yeah. ready. That's yeah. game over. <laughs> Whereas here we're driving on ice and it's yeah. just what it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's not to dissimilar, you know, in the south of Germany where I grew up, um, the, the winters get very cold and, um, and there can be quite a lot of snowfall. Um, but it's just the infrastructure is just used to that. Yeah. Um, so uh, often, you know, when it snows overnight, when you get up in the morning, the roads have already been cleared because the snow plows would have been out all night and there's loads of them, you know. Yeah. Um, and so you don't really experience that much of a problem. Yeah, unless you live on the top of a hill, um, which is pretty much where I grew up, um, that was a little bit different because <laughs> the snow plows didn't go up the hill. So if you lived on the top of it, You'd have to stay in for a couple of days sometimes because the roads were too icy. You just couldn't roll your car. Let me just say a quick thank you to our sponsor, DVE Store. DVE Store's mission is to help you create better video and provide you with the tools necessary to explore your creativity. If you have any digital video equipment needs, whether that's camera equipment, audio gear or lighting and much more, you can check them out at dvestore.com. Thank you to DVE Store for the high-def video. And of course, you can find a link to DVE Store in the description.
how's Lofoten set up to receive this sort of newfound fame as far as the tourism is concerned? Very well, to be honest. Um, so the nearest big airport is Tromsø, which is six hours away. But in Lofoten itself, and right on the edge, there's the Evanes Harstab Airport, which is a bit bigger. And then 10 minutes drive east of me here is Svolvire Airport. And an hour and 15 minutes west is Leknes Airport. And so the internal airline, um, well, the, the, the internal airline with the most flights available, Vidaru, has six or seven services every day from Bodu, which is connected onto Oslo. And so getting here is easy. Uh, you might have to change at Oslo. And, you know, if, if, you, if you're coming from London, you would fly to Oslo and then you would change and then stay on one plane that stops in border and takes off again and brings you here. So it's easy, um, but it's just enough that it's more like an adventure. But in terms of everything else, rental cars, hotels, accommodation, restaurants, supermarkets, hospitals, cafes, all of that stuff, just fine. They're everywhere. Everything's available to you. It's not on demand like Amazon same-day delivery type stuff, but everything you need is here. Um, in just the right volume, just the right amount, that it feels remote and rugged and wild, but you have normal everyday amenities, everything you need. So it's kind of perfect in that sense. And they have put a lot of focus on the tourism industry. As I said, it is the number two industry around here after fish. Um, it, it is a great place to visit. It really is. And the options and the possibilities are huge because you can go skiing, you can rent a helicopter and fly around. Um, you can go surfing, surfing under the Northern lights. Imagine that you can, you can go and eat at fancy restaurants or you can just go to the gas station and have a hot dog. It, the options are huge. Um, and I've been putting a lot of, a uh, lot of my energy into figuring out which things are the best and how they work and how to use them in your favor. So it seems like they've cut a really um, great balance between keeping it traditional and, mm -hmm. you know, and rugged, as you say, but but also sort of opening it up to a tourism industry without really destroying the place at the same time. Yeah. So you can go out in Arctic winds with a full-on snowstorm and really experience the wild nature of northern Norway and the Arctic and then jump in your cabin next to a cozy fire and have a coffee and a nice dinner. It's it's perfect. And I suppose if, if you're into wildlife photography, this is going to be really interesting as well. I suppose yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of very interesting wildlife. Oh, yes. Um, so um, there are reindeer just outside of Lofoten, about an hour and a half away. Um, but in Lofoten itself, the biggest... Like, yeah, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The biggest native animal is the moose. Obviously, there are farm animals. The moose's legs are about two meters tall. They're they're huge. They can weigh up to eight hundred kilos. So there are moose everywhere. Um, they've been here since nineteen ninety six. They actually swam over from the mainland, um, and now there's a huge population of moose here. But then there's other things like there's otters, ferrets. There's Arctic fox, polar fox, cross fox, red fox. Um, there's loads of bird life, so there's obviously all the seabirds, but then on top of that, there are golden eagles, there are sea eagles, there are owls, northern hawk owls, short-eared owls. There's there's a lot of wildlife out here. If wildlife is your thing, then there is a place to go find any of those animals if you want to go photograph them or see them. I love a good moose. One of my favorites. <laughs> but it's, that's pretty perfect. I mean, you know, no matter whether you're into wildlife photography or you're into landscape photography or you know, into uh, photographing the uh, the northern lights, it seems like it's a perfect place for all these things. But then there's also Vikings. There are. So just down the road, there is um, a Viking longhouse, an original Viking longhouse that was discovered and they've... Um, sort of dug it, archaeologically dug it, found things, and then built on top of it a replica of what it was. That's about a thousand years old. Um, Just around the corner. Just for, just for American, American listeners, just just imagine that for a second. So there's a house, 
that's a thousand years old. Older than America. Older than crazy. Yeah, older than older than most <laughs> states in Europe. To yeah. be honest. Yeah. You know? And then um well this one's two hundred years old, it's nearly as old as America. So anyway, down the road a little uh, a little closer, there's a statue to King Oystein, uh, who is um that's a thousand year old guy. He's not a thousand, he's dead. Um but he was the king Viking for this area and he established a load of uh, industry back in the day, like fishing and farming and settling Vikings in this area. So he's, he's commemorated with a statue around the corner, uh, which overlooks the bay in which they landed when they got here initially and, and settled. Um, the Viking history of this area is incredibly rich. And um, that's one of the big things I've been looking at, because I don't know if you know, I'm very, very interested in Vikings. I've, I'm studying a diploma in Norse mythology as well at the moment um, to really dig down on all the history, all the stories and the legends of, of the the Viking age. So Vikings, Northern Lights, landscapes, great food, reindeer, you've, you've pretty much arrived at the main event now, which is this winter and autumn, you and I are going to be running a, si a series, an exclusive series of six workshops up here in the Lofoten Islands where attendees won't be paying any more than any other workshop. It's on par with the workshops without Vikings, but we will have a Viking model with armor and weaponry and everything in tow. <laughs> exploring the landscapes, hunting the northern lights, going and visiting the reindeer with an exclusive, um, what's the word, private reindeer tour, and we'll be staying in a cabin just like this one. It's a phenomenal opportunity. I'm looking forward to it. I don't know about you. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be absolutely fantastic. You know, what a great, I mean, what a great opportunity. You know, not only, um, you know, are we going to explore you're photographing the landscape and the northern lights, yeah. you know, um, yeah. but we're also going to learn how to, you know, dive into portrait photography and how to photograph, how to create amazing portraits and images yeah. of Vikings in their natural yeah. habitat. In their natural habitat. There is a disclaimer in the terms and conditions. You must be careful to, to note that I cannot be held responsible for any actions that the wild feral Viking may carry out towards you so if you if you get too close to the viking that's on you yeah stay away from the sword i think <laughs> yeah the sword with the axe yeah stay away from the sharp end of the viking oh, yeah. but yeah it's going to be incredible we're going to what's going to happen is people are going to arrive here and we're going to have a incredible meal together at borson the world-class restaurant around the corner gets to know each other and then we're going to take a masterclass in Northern Lights and how they work, the mechanics of the Aurora and how to photograph them on the first night before we go to bed. If the Northern Lights are out that night, we'll stay out and we'll shoot them. Then throughout the next few days, we're going to be doing some masterclasses on landscape photography, landscape editing, portrait photography and portrait editing, working with a model, how to pose them, how to shoot with um, natural light and how to shoot with uh, off-camera flash out on location and we're going to go and visit some of these incredible um iconic locations that we've mentioned some with the viking some without the viking and again we're going to go and meet the reindeer so close that you can stroke them and feed them get some incredible photos in there this is going to be i mean this is going to be huge this is going to be so cool i can't wait it's a it's a fantastic fantastic um week <laughs> to spend out in, in in one of the most iconic picturesque areas Absolutely. Locations in the world. It's, it's fantastic. What's the weather going to be like that time of the year? Um, for the first two workshops in September, we're going to have almost like autumn or fall colors. Snow on the mountains, but there shouldn't be any snow on the ground where on the low levels where we'll be. Um, so it will be almost like autumn. As we go on to the second two workshops in October, we'll start to get a bit colder and a bit more snow. And then in the January workshops, if you want full-on winter, January is the, are the dates you need to come. Then there will be snow and ice and everything everywhere. The weather in the Foton is sometimes pretty bad, 
but it doesn't last long and the best photos often come after the worst weather so if we hang around for a snowstorm and wait for it to finish then we'll have incredible light but an incredible atmosphere as well um, and so that's why I've picked the dates that I have picked because they will give us the best weather and the best light um, to explore these beautiful islands, especially when we're towing a Viking around with us and we can put the Viking in the landscape and get images that no one else has got. No one else does this. There are lots of workshops here that focus on landscapes and northern lights, but that Viking, that Viking is something that only we will have. Yes, it will absolutely tick all of the you know all of the boxes. No, no matter whether you're into landscape photography or, um, you know, uh, or portrait photography, it'll tick all of yeah. all of those boxes, which would be absolutely, absolutely. cool. Yeah, so I'm, I'm absolutely thoroughly looking forward to that. It's going to be amazing. Um, totally. And of course, we're going to put all the links um, down in the description. So uh, anyone's interested yeah. in joining us, just in case, just in case anyone's um, listening to the audio version, driving and can't be bothered, just remember idavewilliams.com slash training you'll find all the information absolutely and if you want to see some of the amazing images that uh that dave has shot in that very location then make sure you head over to his instagram um and facebook pages um, very kind where you can see all of that and again all of the links are in the description um you know once once you're there by the way you know make sure to hit the like and subscribe button and ring the bell so you're notified of any any new episode that uh, that comes out so last week you spent you spent a week with Russell. I was going to say Russell Brand. <laughs> I love Russell Brand. He looks like a Viking. No, but you spent a week with Russell Brown from Adobe um, over over in the photo. Um, yeah, give us an idea as to what you got up to. Well, Russell flew over from California, where he lives and works at Adobe HQ, um, and he he was basically jealous of the scenery and the landscape and everything that was going on here. So he flew over to join me for a week. Uh, we stayed here in one of the cabins at Twinoya and we went out exploring every day with Christina, who makes um, beautiful dresses in the south of Norway. And she came up here with the dresses. Um, her boyfriend, Osmond, who lives locally, uh, and the four of us went out together to some of these iconic places and we threw her into the scene. So. What we were doing there is demonstrating that um, these iconic locations that everyone gets a shot of, they're all the same, but one of the things you can do to mix it up, to overcome the Eiffel Tower effect, to defeat the influencers and get a unique photo, is to put a person in the landscape. So in this case, it was Christina with her beautiful dresses, but in the case of the workshop, it's going to be a Viking. Um, makes everything stand out, makes everything unique, and people recognize the location even if they don't, even if we're not at Sakusuri or Hamno Arena, one of these iconic places where you recognize the specific building. When we go to other places around the area, like Alstersfjorn, um, up on the beaches in Unstad in the north, we, the people will recognize that it's Lofoten without necessarily recognizing the specific location because of the geography and because of the characteristics of the landscape around here. So it's something that's going to make it stand out. And that's exactly what we're doing. Russell loves to do things like that. And um, so, yeah, he wanted to come over, join me for a week. And as a Northern Lights expert, I could show him the Northern Lights. So we got a few nights of Aurora. And someone that knows the area locally, I could show him where exactly all of these spots are so that we could create these unique photos. And they're really stunning. In fact, if you want to uh, if you want to check out a full interview with Russell Brown, I'll put the link. If you're watching the YouTube version, I'll put the link um, up here on the screen somewhere. Um, likewise, there'll be a link in the uh, in the description if you are listening to the audio version, of course. But um, but yeah, I've, see, I've seen some of those images, and I have to say, they're fantastic, especially the red dress. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, there's um, I took the uh, opportunity to take a couple of my own iPhone photos using the Profoto flash system and the Profoto camera app. So if you go on my Instagram and take a look, you'll find Christina in one of her dresses. On uh, on the bridge at Or the westernmost um, village at the end of the road here in Lofoten, and it blows my mind. I know it's 2023 and technology is fast paced and everything, but it blows my mind that you can create a photo with your iPhone using an off-camera flash that is as good as a, a DSLR or mirrorless 
image. People, if you didn't say it was iPhone, people wouldn't know. It, it's crazy good. All the stuff that Russell creates on the iPhone is 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 incredible. You know, you, yeah, absolutely. But you, you really wouldn't be able to tell, you know, in no. many years there was there was shot on the phone. It just goes to show how far technology has has come oh, yes. over the last yeah. only like even just over the last two years, for example. Yeah, you know, it's absolutely dramatically. And now that you can get, you know, you can get hold of uh, off-camera flash systems that will work with the phone, like the photo system, for example. You know, there's this really, you know, there's no excuse holding you back anymore. So those of you who've been following the podcast um, in the past, it, you would have seen Dave and his van on several episodes in the past. But right now you're in a cabin. What's happened to yeah. the van? The van's right outside. So I'm in this cabin um, just because of my relationship with the owner of this resort. Um, so he's allowed me to use this cabin. And in a couple of days, as I said at the beginning, I'm going to be leaving. So let me show you. I'm going to I'm going to pull out my iPhone right now. I'm going to just make a video outside the window so you can see what the view is to the side of me from this resort. And there we go. Look at that. Watch that. Oh, dramatic. You can... You can mix that in, right, with your editing skills. Absolutely. So everyone can see the beautiful mountains and the water right outside the cabin. In fact, the water's underneath the cabin. Uh, but yeah, the van's parked right outside, um, and I'm getting it ready for the big drive back, which is roughly two and a half thousand kilometers, I believe, from here back into the mainland southeast into Sweden, passing Kiruna, Abisko into Sweden, and then heading to Ulio, which is on the east coast of Sweden, because that's where the E6 is, the main road that goes north to south, all the way down, and then back across and back into the south of Norway to Larvik, where I need to get a ferry that takes me to Herschel's in Denmark, and then drive the entire length of Denmark into Germany, into the Netherlands, into Belgium, into France, to Calais, jump on another ferry, and then I'm back in the UK. There's this mad mission coming up. It's going to take a few days, um, and it's going to be pretty tedious for me, to be honest, because it's going to be pretty much solid driving for hours and hours on end. But that brings this part of this adventure, and June or two, which I've been doing on YouTube to show what I'm up to, brings it to a close, um, which is quite sad, but exciting things ahead. So when I get back to the UK, I'm going to be working on tying everything together, doing everything I need to go, sorry, I need to do to get back here, which I, I absolutely can't wait for that to happen. I'm looking out the window constantly. You can see I'm, I just love this place. It's, it's paradise for photographers, for life in general, for the pace of life. There's no pollution. It's just, it's a beautiful place and I can't wait to get back here. <laughs> you really love cold places. Oh yeah. Weird, right? <laughs> Fantastic. I'm going to be um, in Stockholm in May for a few days. Um, so if anybody if anybody listening to this um, to this episode should find themselves in Sweden around that time, then uh, let me know. But uh, that should be very interesting. So I'm looking forward to that too. Um, so you said you get a new van ready. Uh, what did you have to do to the van in order to get it back on the road? Um, so I had a problem while I was here, my alternator broke and it, because it's Norway and everything's expensive and because it's in the photo and it's remote, it cost me a thousand dollars or a thousand euros, um, to fix it, replace it with a new one, which would have been 350 back in the UK. So that was crazy, but I need to make sure it's up for the drive. Just check all the fluids, check all the tires over, make sure everything's good to go. But also I need to leave some things behind from the van. So I don't want to carry any dead weight backwards and forwards. So I'm going to leave my skis, my ice skates, my snowshoes. They're all going to be left here somewhere, uh, until next time. Um, but it's basically just that make sure the fluids are all good. Make sure the engine's up for the task of driving so far all in one go. And it's temperature wise. I think we're now getting to the point where things start to warm up again. So you won't, you won't have to put yeah, like stuff to zero temperatures. When I get down into internal Sweden, top and bottom, it's going to be pretty cold, like minus 10, minus 15. But right now, outside the window, it's about zero, 32 Fahrenheit, zero Celsius. So it's pretty good at the moment. Which generally is actually quite surprising, given how far north you are. But that, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that's the Gulf Storm you mentioned earlier. 
it is the effect of the Gulf Stream, but it's also the effect of um, the weather you've had recently. You've had winds blowing from the southwest, and they've carried on to here. The north winds haven't been so strong, so we've had low-pressure systems from you guys coming in for the past few days. Next week here in the photo, and it's actually meant to warm up to about five degrees, which is ridiculous. <laughs> but uh, there's a saying around here about February that if if the weather on the first day of February is bad, the whole of February will be bad. The weather on the first day of February was bad. So, yeah, that's uh, that's what's going on outside the window right now. It's not normal, but it's not bad. So, if you are interested in enjoying one of the workshops, make sure you've got the right weather gear, the right winter gear. As it's yeah, yeah. Everyone that wants to come will get a packing list that tells them exactly what they need. And, in fact, discount codes for quite a few of the brands that we're talking about on the packing list. Excellent. Right, Dave, I'm looking forward to seeing you back in the UK. Um, anybody who's, uh, you know, who's who's into um, what you do can follow you on YouTube, of course, on iDave Williams. Just follow, you know, just search up on, on YouTube. The links, as always, are in the description. Um, and, of course... Every uh, every week or every other week or so, we have a little update from you on the on the Camera Shake podcast as well. So you may have noticed, if, you, if you've been listening to the last few episodes, you may have noticed still um, what Dave's up to now element in the show. We'll continue that um, all the way until back in the UK, obviously. Yeah, that'd definitely. Be, that'd be fantastic. It was amazing to speak to you again. It's been it's been a while. Thank you. Yeah, um, it's been a while. And, uh, you know, I wish you all the best on your travels back. And, of course, you know, there's a lot to, a lot to, look, a lot to look forward to yeah, um, some very exciting things are going to happen in 2023. Absolutely. So um, that is it. We have come to the end of this week's episode, episode 143 of the Camera Shake podcast. So be reminded that if you are listening to the audio version of this podcast, make sure you head over to YouTube where you can see a fully fledged, fully technicolored version of it. And you also have a, an opportunity there to uh, see a lot of the images that are of the landscape and Lofoten itself that Dave's been um, been talking about. So don't miss that. And just a favor, head over to YouTube. Um, again, once you're there, make sure you hit the like and subscribe button, hit that bell. And um, likewise, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and, uh, you know, give us a little five-star rating and uh, write us a little review because it does really help us being found. That being said, we've come to the end. This is episode 143. See you next Thursday.